0: Open with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've been looking at this section in the middle of the chapter from verse 17 down through verse 30. A section you remember uh, we said last week is framed by the issue of glory. Paul mentions it in verse 18 how we are suffering at the present time, but is not compared to be compared with the glory to come. And all the way down in verse 30, how God is at work, having predestined us and called us and justified us, also He will glorify us. So it's an entire section, if you will, framed around this issue of glory, and it's Paul's attempt to turn our attention to the glory that awaits us at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just glory as much as it is glory through suffering, or we might say glory in spite of suffering. And so, what Paul is really doing is trying to bridge a gap, if you will, between our current experience in this world, our current experience of suffering, and the future reality of the glory that awaits us. Especially in light of the fact that he spent the first 16 verses of the chapter telling you and me that we are God's children. We've been adopted into His family if we are led by His Spirit, if we walk uh, with His mind, if we have those characteristics of God within us. Then He told us that we are His children. We have been adopted. And yet for so many people, that seems incongruous with their experience. They don't feel like the child of God because their suffering sometimes causes them to doubt. Trials of their life, the battle with sin, the affliction from the world and persecution and all those things are the very things which make us sometimes wonder whether or not God has abandoned us, whether or not we're still a part of His family. We have that, that sort of inner compulsion that He mentioned in, uh, in verse 15, that, 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 that desire to want to cry, Abba, Father. That the words of Jesus, when He was in His deepest hour of suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, we identify with that. And Paul is saying that just as much as he felt that freedom to cry out to God, so do we, since we are children on equal standing with Him and because of the cross. But just like Jesus, although we share an inheritance with Him, although we are fellow heirs with Him... Our inheritance lies at the end of a pathway of suffering. And so Paul says in verse 17, We're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. In order that we might also be glorified with Him. Now you might have gone to churches all your life. And the message that you hear is that you come to Jesus and He provides you with peace and comfort and wealth and health and prosperity and good things. But if you're under that impression, let me just tell you from the Scripture, that is not the pathway to glory. The pathway to glory walks down the pathway of our Savior and His, his pathway was one of suffering. And so Paul's message and Jesus' message when he says if you want to follow him, you have to take up your cross, and the message that he says in another place that if you want to have life, you have to first lose it, and the message that you hear over and over and over again is that the pathway to glory is a pathway to suffering. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are adopted into God's family. We are his children, provided that we walk down this pathway with him. And so this is the reality, this is the tension in which we live. If we are a child of God, if we are really led by the Spirit of God, it doesn't cause us to completely escape all the suffering of this world. In fact, sometimes it might increase your suffering. Following the pathway of righteousness might bring affliction, it might bring misunderstanding from people, ridicule from people, persecution from people, sacrifice at times. But Paul wants us to know in verse 18, he tells us, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Knowing what's in store for us, Paul says we should constantly be reflecting on the fact that our momentary light suffering isn't worth being compared with the glory that is to follow. And so really what we are in constant need of is this transformation in our minds, a constant renewal in our minds of our view of our sufferings, our view of our difficulties, our view of our struggles. And it doesn't matter if it's a struggle with your health, it doesn't matter if it's a struggle with your finances, it doesn't matter if it's a struggle in your marriage, it doesn't matter if it's a struggle at work. What Paul wants to do is to transform your understanding of sufferings through this passage. He wants to, if you will, lift you up so that you're, rather than sort of looking at it from down in the maze of all of your uh, of your conundrums, he wants to lift you up so that you can look on it from the divine perspective. In fact, there are multiple perspectives that he's giving to us in this, but all of them ultimately helping us understand the way that God sees it so that we can if you will, begin to embrace these sufferings for what God's doing in them. Not only does suffering not mean that God has abandoned you, not only does it not mean that somehow you have been separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, what Paul will eventually tell us is that not only are these a way for you to identify with Christ, but in fact, down in verse 28, God is even using them. He's working all things together for your good, if you're called according to His glory. In fact, God's using the trials, as Paul goes on to say in verses 29 and 30, He's using all of these difficulties to make you more like Christ. I mean, you identify with Christ, you walk down the road of suffering of Christ, but even in this difficulty, you're being conformed to Christ. So this is a passage that is raising us up above the day-to-day struggles of wherever we might be to set our eyes on what this is all about, what is coming for us, what awaits us, and what God's doing in the process in the meantime. He wants to give us a new perspective, to think about things from the standpoint of faith, to look at them through the entire picture of God's work through them. Now to do that, Paul is really breaking this down for us in four perspectives, involving if you will, four players uh, that are are at work in this suffering uh, and helping us comprehend God's glorious purposes in our suffering, four different perspectives from 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 four different participants in this process, each one intended to encourage you, to stir you with a sense of hope, to build your patience, and even to build your sense of anticipation over what is to come. Four different perspectives from four different participants that encourage us in the way God is working out our glory through our suffering. We looked at the first one last week. It is in verses 19 through 22, it is the parallel with creation's suffering. Paul personifies creation and tells us in verse 19 that even the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So he just wants to frame it up for us and let us know to begin with that a big part of this suffering that we're in that has to do with all of the difficulties of this fallen and corrupted world... That has to do with the, 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 the labors, the sweat, the, the thorns and the thistles, the natural disasters, if you will, the diseases, the famines, all that stuff, all the catastrophes. None of it was God's original design. All of it is an indication of the imperfection of creation. And every bit of it is a constant reminder that creation itself is groaning. God originally designed creation in a way that was all good. But as a result of the curse, because of the fall of mankind, it has been plunged into this cosmic, cosmic cycle of decay and corruption. But thankfully, Paul says, God gave it hope. He says, he says it was subjected corrupt, to corruption in hope. Hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That it will experience, as he says, a similar transformation to our own transformation. Over and over again, you hear it spoken about in the Old Testament, an expectation of the physical restoration of the world. An expectation that one day, creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. Paul understood there to be a tremendous hope that God had given, a hope that would be coordinated with our own resurrection. The restoration, or as Paul says, the freedom of the sons of God. And so in as much as you hope for a glorious freedom and restoration, Paul says the same thing is going to happen to the world around us. In fact, Paul says, until now, creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth. This is a reality all the way up to the the time of the cross, and even now after the cross, all the way up to Paul's own time, all the way up to our own time. All of these promises of hope ha- have yet to be realized, but there's something that are going to happen, he says. Creation is just like an expectant mother in travail and in the pains of childbirth, but with that eager expectation that something Glorious is going to happen and all the promises of renewal in the Old Testament, which haven't yet happened, will take place. So Paul begins with that. He wants us to know that, that even looking around us at this fallen world, this corrupted and decaying world, it should be a, a, a constant reminder to us that there's something more that God has for us. That this, this life that you're experiencing with all of its difficulties is not really the original intent of what God had for His own creation. But Paul doesn't leave it just with that. He moves beyond that sort of parallel with creation and gives, gives us another perspective, which comes to us in verses 23 through 25, and that is the patience that is formed through our own suffering. The patience that's being formed through your suffering and my suffering So Paul turns, if you will, from the redemption of creation to our own redemption, from the groaning of creation to our own groaning, from the hope of creation to our own hope. And what he teaches us here is is that ultimately, what all of this ought to be doing is producing patience within us. Patience in suffering, patience in difficulties with our ongoing battles with sin. And he outlines really a number of reasons how this happens, how this develops in our hearts and lives, how we develop and maintain this kind of patience. He outlines it with a series of statements. He mentions uh, it is what we have, it is the way we groan, it is what we hope for, it is the way in which we hope, and ultimately it's the patience that we grow in. And we can look at each one of these to better understand really what the way that Paul, uh, or the way God is working all this out. First of all, Paul tells us that this whole uh, process of suffering produces this patience because we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits. Now, that's an agricultural term. In fact, it comes from the Old Testament law from the barley harvest. Leviticus 23 gave this. Where at the beginning of the, the season, the very first buds of grain that would come with the barley harvest in the month of March or April, maybe April, that Israel was to take those first buds and bring them to the Lord before they did anything else, before they fed their own families, before they, uh, you know, sold anything at the market, they were to bring the first fruits... And this first fruits was to be a demonstration of their confidence that God would fulfill the entire crop. It was their way of saying that they trust that this is the evidence that God is going to follow through with all of His goodness to His people, with all of His abundance to His people. And so this first part was simply a representation of of their confidence and their hope of what was to come, a sort of sample of what was to come. And So what Paul's telling us is that we have received that in the Holy Spirit. Not something we give, but something that was given to us. Something that was an early indication of what is to come. Not that we have only a part of the Spirit, we have received the Spirit in fullness. We have everything that God wants us to have with the Spirit. As He says back in verse 9, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. If you're not experiencing the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. But we, who are the children of God, have received in full the Spirit of God. But the Spirit represents only a part of all that God has to give to us. He's come, He's given us new life. We've tasted of the newness, it is real inside of us, but it's not all that God has to give. Because as we said in the past weeks, when Christ returns, these outer bodies that we still suffer along in, these decaying bodies, these still corrupted bodies that we're in, they are going to experience a transformation of the same kind that our inner man has already experienced. What has already become a reality on the inside is going to become a reality on the outside. And so the Spirit gives us just a sort of foretaste of that. A a desire within to obey God, a yearning to be pure, an aspiration to walk in wisdom, a longing to glorify God, to do more for God. All of that is a part of this new life that comes to us by the Spirit. But those things are just samples. They're just samples of what is going to come in fullness at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. A final, a full manifestation in our outer bodies. Until then, the Spirit who lives within us gives us this constant evidence. A constant evidence of the coming transformation. A down payment, as Paul says in another place, of the full... The full inheritance that is to come. He is the first fruits. Which, secondly, Paul tells us then that because we have this Spirit, we, secondly, we groan inwardly. We who have the Spirit, and this is only those who have the Spirit, we're groaning. It's what he says in verse 23, caught in this place between what God has already done on the inside and what still has not happened on the outside, we groan with this discomfort. We are groaning, we are aching, we're feeling sadness, we're feeling distress because our Obedience to the Lord is still incomplete. It's not what what we want it to be. It's not what we hope it to be. It's not what we long for. And so because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, those who have that necessarily feel this aching to want that process that has started within to be fully manifest on the outside. Now these aren't necessarily verbal groans. Paul, in fact, says that we're groaning inwardly. So these are not verbal laments, but they're more like attitudes. Attitudes in the continued uh, face of the weakness of our flesh. We continue to grapple with disappointment. We groan whenever we look at our own life and see what still hasn't been subjected to Christ the way we want it to be. And because of those inward groans, uh, they are... They're, they're non-verbalized. But they are propelling us on to righteousness. Now don't misread this. These inward groans. This is by no means what we might call grumbling. They're inward. They're not external. They're unspoken. They're not the sort of spoken grumbling about your circumstances that is a constant temptation to... to sin and to um, um, complain with discontent, always murmuring in self-pity, always talking about how difficult life has been for you, always uh, noting how much easier it is for everyone else, always talking about how all of the factors have piled up against you and given you a bad hand, if you will, in life, that self-pity, which is in such a way a trap for so many people. Most times it's not an indication that you're weary of sin. Most of the time it's an indication that you're looking for an excuse to sin. Giving in to self-pity is perhaps the greatest factor for so many people on why they give in so easily to temptation. Self-pity and the grumbling spirit is the reason why so many give in to the temptation to sin. This isn't the moan of self-pity. This is a groaning internally of disappointment about sin. Disappointment and weariness over sin. We might also add to it, it's not an attitude of anxiety or doubt. This isn't the groaning of anxiety, the fear that somehow you have outstrip the grace of God or the, the worry and concern that his mercy and loving kindness might have been exhausted and come to an end. This is just a sense of fatigue like a long distance runner who in the middle of his marathon is beginning to feel the aches and pains in his thighs and in his calves and in his ankles. You're, you're feeling the pain of the battle with sin but you're still pressing on forward in it because you are focused on the finish line. And so we groan. We, we, we have these internal cries of frustration for longing uh, and longing for, for, for deliverance. Paul says it over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He uses the same term over there to speak about this reality. He says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that is to say, he's talking about your body, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed we have a building from god a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens for in this tent we groan longing to be longing to put on our earthly excuse me our heavenly dwelling if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked for while we're, st- we're still in this tent we groan being burdened not that we would be unclothed but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal would be swallowed up in by life. As Paul goes on to say, therefore we make it our aim. We, we make it our aim that while we're in this body, we might be pleasing to Him. This is what the groan yields. It is a yearning, not just a, a against sin, but a yearning for righteousness. Righteousness. Far from the groan of self-pity, this is the groan of striving, of wanting to please God more. But we feel the burden, the weakness of our flesh. Like the psalmist, Psalm 38, David says, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. My uh, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before You. My sighing isn't hidden from You. This is the way a Christian is. This is the, the difficulty that you have. See, your suffering, your suffering may not even be its greatest on the outside. It might be just as great on the inside. As you're battling against sin, people might look at on the outside and think that things are going just well, but inside you are groaning, you're longing. The more and more you go in this life, the more and more you hate sin, the more and more disappointed you are with your lack of conformity to Christ, the more and more you long for heaven. It pains you to see the ongoing weaknesses of your flesh. It pains you to see the the downward spiral of this world, the ongoing corruption that's around us. It pains you to watch people over and over again reject God, reject His will, reject His glory, and go a pathway of darkness and foolishness. All of that stuff just causes you to groan. And so we groan and we pray with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, Come, Lord. Come. Or with the Apostle John in Revelation 22. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Or even with the Lord Himself. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our groan. Those are the inward cries that we're lifting up to the Lord every every day. Wanting so badly for God's will to be done. Thirdly, Paul says, not only do we have this first fruits of the Spirit and this inward groaning that's going on, but we groan waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And here's the confirmation that this groaning is not just pointless complaining. This is a groaning with a clear ambition in mind. Not so much groaning against certain things as much as it is groaning for. Groaning for what Paul says is our adoption. Now some of you might be thinking, wait a second. He he said back in verse 15, I thought Paul said we were already adopted as sons. Yes, the, the adoption that we have has already been completed, you might say, legally. But experientially, it's still incomplete. There is a a reality of our adoption that we haven't fully tasted. It still awaits us. Paul defines it, this adoption, ultimately as the redemption of our bodies. You see, when God legally adopted you into His family, when He made you, His sons or His daughters... We received the Spirit, we were born again as His children, but we were left in what we might call unredeemed bodies, unredeemed flesh. So we can properly speak about ourselves as spiritually unredeemed people. Oh, excuse me, spiritually uh, spiritually redeemed people with unredeemed flesh. We speak about ourselves as spiritually redeemed, but with unredeemed flesh. And when that happens, when our redemption comes, then we will have the full experience, not only of, uh, of redemption, but we might say also of salvation. Some people like to speak about us as being half saved, having been saved by God's grace, having already been justified, as Paul says back in fi- Romans 5, 9, having been justified by faith, we shall be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So there is a future salvation that awaits us. There's a salvation that isn't experientially known yet. And so some people like to speak about us being half saved, still awaiting our future salvation. I, I get that. There definitely is a deliverance that awaits us from God's wrath. But I prefer to say that we are fully saved in our spirits And yet still waiting the redemption or the salvation, the transformation of our bodies. We're fully saved, but we haven't yet fully experienced what that is until Christ comes again. It would be much like a child, if you will, in a foreign country who has been adopted into a family, maybe one from America. The legal paperwork has been filed, the signatures have been made. All the authorities have recognized that the transfer of, of relationship and authority has happened from the, the, uh, whatever care the child was in, whatever orphanage they were in, whatever foster program they were in, they have been transferred legally out of the protection of that and sometimes even out of the provision of those structures under the protection and provision and legal authority of a new parent. And yet maybe they haven't actually left their own country yet. Maybe they haven't actually even met their own parents yet. But it's coming. They are now legally children of this new family. But the full experience of it still awaits them. Maybe they can't even imagine what it will be like, but it's theirs in full and in total. So the full experience of fellowship with the new family hasn't yet occurred until Christ comes again. When that happens, we're going to go through a transformation. Now you might have thought the heaven, you might have thought that the afterlife is just some sort of sort of spiritual angelic experience where you sort of leave your body altogether and you float through the clouds for the rest of eternity. But that's far from what the Scripture says awaits you. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. He speaks about the coming of Christ, bringing about a resurrection of our bodies. And when he speaks about that, he puts in contrast our current unredeemed flesh. He says, what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. In other words, this redemption of our bodies will result in a new, immortal, and and eternally durable body. A body that therefore will never die again. One of the tragic consequences of the fall into sin was that our bodies, which were originally created to live forever, became mortal. They became subject to death and decay. And so, without exception, every human being born is born with a perishable body. Really, from the moment you are born, the process of of aging and deterioration begins. So that even the healthiest people, as they get older, become weaker, become more subject to disease, various physical problems. Then, of course, upon death, decay sets in very rapidly with our bodies. The psalmist says he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. For man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind passes over it, it is no more. His place acknowledges it no longer. So, so this has always been recognized. There's a frailty to our bodies because of the fall of sin. But the resurrected body, Paul says, won't be like that. From the moment it is created and for all eternity, it will exist perfect, unblemished, and imperishable. That means it will never grow old. It will never have sickness. It will never decay. It will never deteriorate. And along with that, since aging is a part of the process of corruption, our bodies will show no signs of age. They will represent God's creation of humanity at its peak. They will represent all the characteristics of maturity at its best in short they'll represent what god intended man to be in in adam and eve in the garden there will be no injury no disease everything restored to perfection all this of course is part of christ's work not only in restoring us but in restoring everything He will fully perform His role as Redeemer, restoring, obviously, first our spirits, then our bodies, and then the world, bringing everything back into the perfection of creation when God declared it is very good. But not just that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that our bodies will be redeemed not just in their makeup, but also in their purpose, because he says that the current body was sown in dishonor but the resurrected body will be raised in glory. So he makes this contrast that, that harkens back to, if you will, the image of God for, in, in which we were created. That was marred at the, at the fall. We were created to bear the likeness in the image of God, to reflect and represent Him among His creation. And then sin entered and all of that became tainted and our depravity meant that somehow now sin hinders our fulfillment of our role and design by God. Because of our sin, we can't fully reflect God's mind. We can't fully reflect God's character as we were meant to. We can't fully accomplish the original task that was assigned to us in overseeing His creation. People often ask me, well, if you believe in a restored creation, if you believe in a millennial kingdom, what are we going to do for all that time? Well, I think we're going to do what God originally designed us to do. We're going to rule over His creation. We're going to bring glory to Him in in every avenue. We're going to be engaged in that original assignment of subduing the earth, bringing glory to God, being appropriate image bearers and likeness bearers. Along with that, Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15 that our current body was sown in weakness, it'll be raised in power. I believe that's really a reference to our physical qualities, not just our spiritual power, as Paul goes on to say later in that chapter, but our resurrected bodies will demonstrate a a, a resourcefulness, a power that we've never known in this life. There will be, in other words, a complete reversal of all the effects of fall upon the human body. The, the body originally created with all the power of intelligence, all the uh, untainted uh, abilities that were given to it, the unmitigated effects uh, of sin against, uh, on the mind will be reversed. And so we will experience not just energy and intelligence, but creativity and activity and what we might call ingenuity and industry. We will fill God's kingdom with so much wonder and so much glory to Him in the way that we serve Him, just like He wanted Adam and Eve to. This was His design for humanity. We'll be living it out according to His perfect plan. Paul also says there in 1 Corinthians 15, it was sown a natural body, but our redeemed body, he says, will be raised a spiritual body. Now don't read that and think that he's talking about a non-material body. When he says it's raised a spiritual body, he doesn't mean it's raised a non-material body, but what he's saying is that it's raised a fundamentally spiritually oriented body. This is the contrast that Paul makes several times in, in, in the book of Corinth when he uses the word spiritual, he tells the Corinthians that they're not spiritual. What he's saying is that you're not oriented towards the Spirit. And so what he's telling us here is that our bodies, they were, they were sown natural. They were sown, if you will, still corrupted by the flesh and everything. But they will be raised rising above all those sinful passions, rising above above all the corrupted thoughts of our mind, rising above all the battle with temptation, there will be an unfettered devotion and service to the Lord. Now, if you're a believer, you've already tasted this. If you're a believer, you've already internally experienced this. The Scripture says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. There has been a total transformation in your heart if you're a believer. Whereas before you had no interest in the things of God, whereas before you had no interest in the Word, whereas before you may not have been interested in Christian fellowship, In worshiping and praising God, there's been a total transformation where now all of your desires have been oriented towards wanting to please God. Ambitions have been replaced, your old ambitions with new ambitions in Christ. But all of that still imprisoned in the old flesh, our old bodies. So that even while we have new ambitions and new desires, they must constantly do battle against old temptations and the ongoing corruption and error that fills our minds because of this world. But in our resurrected bodies, Paul says they'll be completely spiritual. Without all the hindrances of the old body, completely spiritual people. And all those desires fulfilled. So Paul here in Romans 8:23 this is what he's talking about. We wait eagerly for that day. We're groaning for that day. We have this internal longing. We want to fully experience it. As John says in 1 John 3, those who set their Uh, hope on this, are being transformed into His likeness because of that. We are so focused on this new body. We're always dreaming and thinking about this new body that as that happens, we're constantly being transformed into the likeness of it even here and now. Here in Romans 8, Paul adds a fourth statement that helps us to sort of understand how all this process is then working out. Not only do we have this this first fruits that leads to this groaning and this this longing, this eager waiting. But he says that we're also in this process of change because of what we hope for. We hope for what we do not see. Or as he says in verse 24, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. So Paul defines everything he's just said. All this First fruits and the groaning and the longing, he, he defines it all now simply as hope. In this hope, you were saved. This hope referring to all that anticipation for adoption and redemption. And so Paul states the obvious truth, that if something is already visible, then you can't properly say that you hope for it. I mean, you don't say, it wouldn't make sense to say, well, I hope my mom gives birth to me, right? That that doesn't make any sense. That's already happened. Or you can't say, well, I hope my wife marries me. I mean, it's already a reality if you're married. You can't say a a middle-aged person can't say, well, I hope I make it to 16 years old. I mean, it's already happened, right? So we don't speak about hope for something that's already visible. But what he's saying is, That all of these things that are churning in our minds and causing us to groan, unfortunately, they're not visible yet. They're not a reality in our life yet. We're fooling ourselves if if we think that they are. These are still something that waits us in the future. This is a hope, he says, that isn't visible and yet it leads to optimism. That's basically what this is. Hope is really just another word for optimism. It is the attitude that is based on expectation and certainty of a positive outcome. An expectation and certainty of a positive outcome. Hope then is the opposite of despair. It's the opposite of dejection. It's the opposite of being cast down. Hope goes through suffering, it goes through difficulties, it goes through conundrums, and it continues to face every one of them with the optimism that no matter what is going on in this life, no matter what might be thrown at you, no matter what you might lose, no matter what you might suffer, that there is something glorious, something wonderful that is awaiting you at the resurrection of Christ. And so there is a, an unassailable optimism into which you were saved, Paul says. It cannot and it will not be assaulted. If you have your Bibles, flip with me over to First Peter because Peter, Peter talks about this, this kind of hope. He says in First 1, uh, 1 Peter 1, 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ is this sort of evidence of what is to come for us. And and Peter goes on to say in verse 4, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is an outcome that is absolutely unassailable. It's kept by God's power, he says. Being, uh, God's power is, is guarding it through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. And some of you are grieved. You're going through grief right now. You're going through difficulty right now. You're going through gloom right now. You're feeling all this, but, but Peter says, look, even if for this momentary time you are grieved, even if that is happening, he says, you rejoice. So that the testing of the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, who, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now... You believe and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You are joyous for this reason, not because of what you see. Some of you aren't experiencing that joy because you have lowered your sights down to just simply what you see. You see the difficulties in your life. You see the difficulties in your home. You see the difficulties in your job. You see the difficulties in your health. And you have lost hope because you are looking at what is visible. But Peter's telling you and Paul's telling you that you have been saved into a hope that is not seen. Hope that's seen isn't hope. That's not any place to find hope. You don't find hope in what you have visibly before you, you find hope, this expectation comes from what is still unseen. No matter what the pathway is that you're heading down, you know that its final destination is glorious. Spurned by men, rejected by friends and foes, cast down by all the difficulties and thorns and thistles of this life and this world, You pass along this journey, but all of those things are just obstacles, temporary disruptions and distractions along the road as you stay focused on the final destination. And then finally, Paul says, because of all this, there in verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it patiently. We are filled with, with hope. If we're filled with hope, we're truly filled with optimism. We've tasted the goodness of God's Spirit. we groan because of that transformation that takes place inside of us. We want the full experience of our adoption. Then we are optimistic. And this optimism makes all of the momentary afflictions seem less and less significant. The momentary suffering no longer appears to be a significant threat to our ultimate end. And so we're not so dejected by all of our weaknesses. We're not so discouraged by the ongoing struggles that we have. We're not so disheartened in the battle with sin or the assaults of this sinful world against us or against our Savior, against His glory. It all causes us to groan. But we're not disheartened. We're not disheartened. We groan. We feel this discomfort and this aching because of the remaining sin we see in ourselves and in the world. But we're not disheartened. Instead, we have patience. We know that this is the pathway of suffering our Lord walked down. We know That none of it, none of it is an indicator that God has withdrawn or retracted any bit of our inheritance. We know that no matter how bad the suffering is, that the glory that we have already tasted on the inside is going to be fully manifest on the outside. And so we have patience. We can go through the the difficulties. We can face the conflicts. We can even understand how all of this stuff is stripping away the remaining sinfulness in our life and we embrace it. We know the suffering is even conforming us to the image of Christ. It's a perspective we need. We need to be lifted out of all the mire and muck of everyday life and brought back to the place where we see the whole picture the way God sees it. He's working it out. You're in the midst of it right now. Creation's in the midst of it right now. There's upheaval around us in the natural world, the natural order. There's upheaval in your natural bodies. But God has given us hope. He's called us to it. And we'll endure in patience because of it. That's if you're in Christ. Christ. The sad thing is if you're not in Christ then there is no hope. There's nothing to look forward to but the fearful judgment of God. The suffering and the pain that you have right now are just a foretaste of the suffering and pain of eternal destruction. Our warning to you today is that you wouldn't leave here having come so close to adoption and to glory to only turn around and walk away into damnation if you're here today and you don't know Christ if you're here today and you don't know anything about the first fruits in your heart and life you haven't experienced any of this transformation inside if you're here today and you are feeling the hopelessness and the despair of your suffering and your sin we're pleading with you come to Christ he will accept you he will adopt you he'll make you his own He'll give you His Spirit and He'll destine you for glory. Well, Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Lord, we are grateful that You have given us hope. Thankful that You have put within our hearts the first fruits, the groaning of the Spirit who's within us, causing us to yearn and long for that final day, I pray, Father, that You would make it all the more clear to us that the one who has his hope fixed on this purifies himself as he is pure. Lord, make us then fixed on our eternal hope. Help us to lift our hearts and minds above these momentary afflictions. A day, a month, a year, A dozen years, they're just momentary, compared to eternity, not even worthy to be compared. Lord, we're so grateful for those promises, so grateful for that inheritance. We pray then, Lord, that you would seal it in our hearts firmly today and make it our joy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.